But people, just like the church that Jesus established in Jerusalem, Israel, churches and individuals of that faith uh, existed not just then, Jesus established the very first church, but people just like them have continued through the centuries till today. So that this very day, I'm confident that this church is one in that line of churches from Jesus Christ, the church he established in Jerusalem till the present time. And there have, as I've indicated here and want to stress here, there has been a continuous line of this type church the whole trip, and we can prove that and are doing that. I've talked to you about the Montanists, who were early Christians starting uh, before the end of the, of the uh, uh, second century. And they were true. This drift of churches away from true Christianity had already started. It was getting stronger and continued to get much stronger. But there were those like the Montanists, the first, one of the first dissenting groups who said, this is wrong. We're not going in this direction, this wrong direction. And then they were followed by uh, some people called the Novatians, following a man who, who was uh, also a first century Christian and was against the departure. And these were followed by another group called the Donatists. And so we've been through a lot of that detail. I just want to remind each of you, this has been going on from the beginning. And in addition to the Novatians, are, are the Montanists and the Novatians and the Donatists in that order, there were lots of other churches that weren't up there dissenting per se. They were just going on about business. While Rome and their drift is getting bigger and stronger, there were these people over there who were just having church. They weren't a movement of any sort. They were already felt like in the right movement in the church, in the line that Jesus established. And some of those lived in Italy. A lot of them lived in the area around Rome. And as the, as the papacy, the Pope and, and the Roman Catholic Church developed and began to be such strong entity with so much money and so much power and clout, they began to persecute anybody who didn't do it just like them, didn't believe like them, and in fact didn't join them and support them. They said, you're going to either join us or we're going to get rid of you. And as that occurred and these persecutions got stronger and stronger, no longer by the pagan Romans, but by now the so-called Christian Romans, the Roman Catholic Church group, these people had to run. And so they did run, and they ran up north, up through Italy, up into the Cotian Alps and some of the other Alps that go over into Switzerland to the, west, uh, to the east. They were up there for survival purposes. It was either do it or die. And they were hiding, but they were like us. They were people, and we're going to look at them. And there were some others as well. Uh, I want to talk for a moment to you about records. And if you don't have one of these workbooks, just raise your hand, and perhaps uh, one of these men here can get one of them to you. But in, in the workbook, under Lesson 6, right at the beginning, I say that more should be said about the records of these Christians and these churches who, who refused to depart from the Scriptures. And some of you, in fact, many of you perhaps, are familiar with a little booklet called The Trail of Blood, it's uh, really a good little document, but it's a little document, and it doesn't have lots of detail, at least lots of documentation. The man who wrote it was called J.M. Carroll, 
And he is uh, a man who reflects many years of study in this area. He called the existence from the church at Jerusalem that Jesus established through the years that followed, probably the next uh, 1,500 years at least, I'd say more like 17 or 1,800 years, the trail of blood. Because as this uh, Paul's church, this departing church, getting away from Jesus Christ and the apostles and that brand of Christianity and establishing a very different brand of Christianity, as that entity strengthened, they began, as I said, to brutalize people who didn't join them and they not just beat them up, but they, they actually uh, martyred them, many of them. Some of them, they just cut off their arms or their legs or their genitals or put out their eyes or cut off their tongues. And they bled and bled and did all that bad stuff. But they killed a bunch of them. I mean, a whole lot of them. It was truly a trail of blood century after century after century. It's what our kind of people have endured an explanation given by another great writer, and if you're looking for sources, they're listed in the in the workbook there. Many detail, I mean, many footnotes are there to tell you where you can find this information. There's a real champion writer, and I, I think his name is John T. Christian, and he wrote two volumes of a really excellent book uh, on this uh, on this very issue. Go and quote him. He said, uh, we are far removed from many of the circumstances under survey. So here we are in 2023 looking back, and he's 100 years ago looking back and realizes we're a long way from the first century and the second century and the third and fourth and fifth and so on. Quoting also, the representations of the Baptists were often made by enemies who did not scruple when a course suited their purpose to blacken character and hence the testimony of such sources must be received with discrimination and much allowance made for many statements. To put a little more light on that, Christian is saying that when these, uh, this Catholic church got such a grip all over Europe, as it did, and they were hunting down Christians, real first century Christians, that is those who they called heretics because they didn't go along with what the church said is right. These guys went along with what the Bible said is right to be orthodox, but the church called them heretics. So they sent out these hunters, call them legates, we'll talk about them a little later, to track down people like that who didn't believe uh, all the church stood for and support all these rituals and stuff that was going on at the time. And especially who didn't put all their money in there like they should according to the church. When they would uh, bring in somebody, remember we are in a situation now where you have a state church, you have a state behind the church. That's what that sort of looks like. Whatever the church leaders say, and they are a priesthood, remember, sort of hierarchy above the ordinary people. Um, whatever these church leaders say is right, they can enforce, not just because of church authority, but they have the government, the civil government behind them to enforce what they want. So if they say uh, you are a heretic because you're not baptizing your baby, you had a baby, you're a parent, so parents, you didn't baptize your baby, they find out about that. What they're going to do is bring you into a court 
that is made up of a Catholic judge, a Catholic prosecutor, a Catholic defendant, and they're going to use Catholic theology, nothing about the Bible, you're not going to be able to enter innocent testimony if you're accused. Your neighbors can, can testify against you. There are a whole lot of things that it's a stacked deck. So they've come after you. You didn't baptize your baby, and that's punishable by death for failure to do so because you've damned your little boy or little girl to hell by not baptizing them into the church, which is supposedly ultimately to get them to have not faith in Christ. You've got to get them into the church to do it. So they accuse you, and dependent on the uh, severity of the offenses, they might deem it, and they decide that, of course, and there's no appeal. Then uh, <clears throat> they could put you in prison, they could uh, beat you, mutilate you, or they could just kill you. And so that's going on. But one of the things they did, they kept the records. They destroyed the records all the records they could of individuals. So most of the records that Christian is pointing out here are records that were kept by the people who were doing the killing of the other people. But yet those records are good because in those records, their own records, many times they state what the offense was. This is what they believed. <laughs> Guess what they believed? They believed biblical Christianity. Salvation by grace through faith and all those things. So we can look at those records, though they're a sort of a biased records, but nevertheless, they give insight into the kind of situation that was going on and the beliefs of those people who were under the gun. Christian goes on to say, the material that remains is scattered through many libraries and archives in many lands, and it's not always readily available, especially to scholars who I want to investigate. For example, you're going to have a devil of a time getting into the Vatican Library if you're not approved by the Catholic Church. That's the way it is, has been in many of the places all over Europe were, were Catholic strongholds, and the libraries were Catholic libraries. And so uh, materials about who we are have been all the way from the several places in Germany into Paris, and where they had good civilization or concentration going on there around Paris, and in England, and in Austria, and in Italy, especially Italy, and places. These are where these records are found. But thank God there have been people who've made it their business to search and were able to get in and get the materials that I'm presenting here to you today. A Christian also says, often on account of persecutions, the Baptist were far more interested in hiding than they were in giving account of themselves and of their whereabouts. They were just trying to live. They were just trying to survive. So they weren't trying to leave a record of who they were and what they were doing. They were just trying to keep from being killed or beat up or have their kids killed or their wife or their husband killed, all those bad things. Frequently, he says, they were called by different names by their enemies, and that's confusing. You hear names like Cathari, Abagenses, Waldenses, Bogomils, Paulicians. You say, all these names, what are they talking about? Many times these names are just different ways to call the same people. We're talking about people who believe New Testament doctrine 
and who didn't believe salvation is gained through the church. They believed you had to get saved before you get into the church. You had to be saved before you could get baptized. And thus, they believe these things. And, and because many times of their lifestyles, they were many of them very sacred, you know, very holy living, godly living people, they were called purists or cathares. Somebody else might look at them and say, they're those rebaptizers. There's those Anabaptists. And re- Anabaptists and Baptists are terms not so much as names, but of actions. It's describing what's going on. They were baptizing, and so they were called Anabaptists. Just like John. He was baptizing in the Jordan River. He's called John the Baptist. Not because he was a Baptist, as we would say we are. He did, I think, and was in terms of doctrine. Yet, he was doing a job, and thus he was... He was described as a Baptist because he was a baptizer. It should be observed and obvious that the coverage in a study like this, particularly in a survey like I'm giving you here from Friday night, yesterday morning, and through the rest of today, is not a comprehensive look. I say this, especially you who maybe don't know this, and probably you do, but I've spent a lot of my life doing some research of my own <clears throat> and captured it in this little book called A History of Churches, The Survival of New Testament Christianity Against Overwhelming Odds. And in it, I go into much more detail than I could possibly give you in a little few sessions like we're here. And you can get those. You can see Margaret there on the table back there if you'd like one. <clears throat> but I would recommend that for your own sake, you acquaint yourself with your own lineage. You're a Baptist. You need to know why you are and why we've been here the whole time. This will help you do that. <clears throat> Even this book, it's a, not, as you can see, a little small book. I mean, it's not a huge book. It's 400 and something pages long. But even it's a tip of the iceberg. There are lots of great works and lots of great historians, especially lived 100 to 200 years ago, who really waxed well and have captured a lot of this material. And you can spend a lot of your time just researching on who you really are and where you were at given times and which countries and by what names you were called. I want to talk about some of those who stayed faithful to core scriptural positions. Some of those who stayed faithful. You know, if you just listen to the popular press, you would think that the Catholic Church is the only true church that's been here the whole trip. That's just false. There are a bunch of us Churches like that one that Jesus established in Jerusalem, individuals who've been here the whole trail. So I want to talk about these because I've maintained to you that we in here in 2023 at Northwest Baptist Church look back to see who we are. We look at our doctrinal positions. And by the way, if you've never gotten one of our Constitution and Bylaws, which has a doctrinal statement in it, you ought to get one. See your deacon. And they'll give you one. We gladly wish everybody would look and see, this is what we believe. And if you study our stated beliefs, and we preach those beliefs, but we're stating them concisely in our Constitution and bylaws. You look at those beliefs and just hold them up by your New Testament. Look at the beliefs of Jesus Christ and the apostles and these New Testament churches. And I call New Testament because Jesus established a church in his lifetime in the New Testament, which New Testament church where we see the real McCoy, the pattern. We look at what we believe in light of what they believed, and we say we are one. We believe the same things. But we have to ask ourselves that question. 
I'm here, they were here, but were there some here and here and here? Is there a line of us, or did we just Johnny-come-lately start up to be like them? And there are a bunch of churches who have done that. They just started out there and became like them and going on like that. But I remind everybody in this room that Jesus Christ said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And that's a promise of continuity or perpetuity as we call it. That is, he's saying the time type church I'm establishing here in Jerusalem is going to have baby churches, going to have baby churches, and there's going to be a series of these baby churches until I come again, the second coming. That's not a guess. That's a prophecy of the God of heaven. He also, that's reinforced in Ephesians 3.21, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus throughout all ages, world without end. That statement, without all ages, says there wasn't one started here. It got broken down and stopped, and then over here another one started up. He said they're going to be here throughout all ages. And if those promises are what they're cracked up to be, they're predictions, we ought to be able to look in history and find these churches. That's the thing that drove me personally. I want to see who they were and where they were. And I'm going to show you three separate ends. Thank you, babysitter. I appreciate it. So <clears throat> I want to show you here three stems of us. These are in your notes. Some of those who stayed uh, uh, faithful to the core positions, keep in mind that no Christian group can be said to have been without some shortcomings. I'm not saying that we or even the church in Jerusalem, Israel, had everything exactly right. They didn't, and we don't. We're working on it all the time, but it's ongoing. We're mortals, and mortals bring problems into the picture. And so the very first church, the one that Jesus personally established, is mentioned in the sixth chapter of the history book of your New Testament called Acts. And the history book records that in that good church that Jesus established, there arose a murmuring between two factions, the Grecians and the Hebrews, and they were arguing about who was getting the most welfare from the church. Who was getting the handouts? Coming in, I'm panhandling today. You need to pay my doctor bill or my... They were griping about this very issue. That's not a very good thing. It's not a good testimony to any church, but that's what they were doing in that church. And that has been the case of churches. You look at a group of those churches in the second and third chapters of the Revelation of your Bible. Seven of them are named. And in those cases, the God of heaven who's doing the talking here says to those churches through their pastors, I have somewhat against thee. That says that in all these churches, there are always going to be shortcomings. But there are core positions. We'll talk about them here a little not much, but again in the morning sermon, I'm going to talk about those core positions. And those core positions have been embraced by a group the whole trip. Little baggage here or there, but as a whole, they've embraced these core positions, and you can trace them by their positions down through the centuries in different countries in the East and the West. Also keep in mind that when it came to most of their core beliefs, those who refused to depart Scripture in favor of tradition were in agreement. They were, in essence, the same people. For example, I'm going to talk about a group that traced, they came up through, through uh, Greece and into the Serbian states. And they traced their lineage all the way through the Apostle Paul, back, back to that first church and him. 
They didn't. They weren't novations or monetists. They were just people who stayed true, but they went north into the Serbian part, Croatia and, Bo and Bosnia and those countries. They went up there. And they had these straight New Testament beliefs. After a while, they met up with some of the people who came up from northern Italy in the middle, independently. These went up straight from Paul. These over here, they also believed in what Paul taught, but they weren't in that group. They were a different based group. They came up through northern Italy and into southern France. And when they got together, they began to talk about Christ and what they believed. And they found out that they were one people. They believed the same things. I mean, they were Christians. I mean, first century Christians, not Catholic Christians, but they were first century Christians. And then over in the West, in uh, Wales, there was a similar situation that we look at here. So keep in mind, core beliefs, when they got together, they found that they had the same core beliefs. Also, there's another point, and that is the most common denominator among them was their practice of baptizing believers only. No position has been more hated and more people have died over than you've got to get saved before you're a candidate for baptism and you can't be a member of a church until you're baptized. You say, well, that doesn't sound like something to kill somebody over. You just ask the popes. They killed them. Thousands of them, millions, not just thousands, millions of them, not hundreds of thousands, but millions of them over mainly this issue. Not the only issue, but it was certainly the number one issue that brought about bloodshed. Salvation by grace through faith. You have to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ in order to be saved. And it doesn't matter if you join a church, you're baptized or whatever, until you believe on him in your heart, you're still lost. That's fundamental. Let me talk to you about some general names. Um, there were generally umbrella names to denote a large group of churches with similarities. Umbrella names. Um, two other big umbrella names to talk about people of our kind who didn't go on the big drift was Cathari, number one, Cathari's. The word Cathari means pure. It's just a it's just a way of describing them more than the, the bystanders, the people who were around them, gave them the name. They just call these are those, these are those holy, holy people over there. What do we call the holy rollers sometimes? Well, these were not quite in maybe that category, but they were, they were a group of, after all, shouldn't our kind of people be honorable in our life? Shouldn't our lifestyle be a lifestyle of truth and honesty and purity? And we shouldn't be out here uh, with immorality going on or not paying our debts or not taking care of business. That's pure, pure stuff. These people were practicing the very same things that we preach and advocate that we ought to practice now. And as a result, they were called Cathares. They usually had another name under that, but overall they were seen as the Cathares. It's a name given to many groups over a long period of history, several hundred and even thousand years there. The second general umbrella name for our kind of people was Anabaptists. A-N-A-B-A-P-T-I-S-T-S. Anabaptists was a name of hostility given by the enemies to this group of people primarily because they were baptizers. Remember, baptize means to, uh, to immerse. And these guys were baptizing immersion people who had believed 
And as a result, the neighbors and especially the enemy said, uh, you're, you're just not just Baptist, but because you baptized some people who were, who were sprinkled as a baby or who had a false profession and didn't really get saved and they finally trusted Christ, then you're Anna, a re-baptizers. And our people said, we're not re-baptizers. We're baptizing people who've never had a legitimate and true baptism. We're just baptizers. We're just Baptists, really. That's all we are. A good case in point that I failed to mention in one of our earlier sessions was this guy named Pepin the Short. He's the guy that came down from the, from the Germany, Germany area and made a deal with the pastor of the church in Rome, the bishop of Rome, as they call him. We call him the Pope. And the Pope said, if your troops here will convert to Nicene Christianity, Nicene is the brand they had in, in Italy and the other brand, uh, Aryan Christianity, that, that was a, what these guys were familiar to. It believed you could lose your salvation and Jesus wasn't really God. So they said he, most of his troops were already Christian in the sense that they didn't really believe in Jesus was a Christ, but they had embraced Christianity. You know, it's easy to say I'm a Christian when you don't know what you really stand for. That's pretty common even today. Anyway, he said, Pepin, uh, the Pope said to them, hey, if you get your troops to convert to Christianity, uh, then I will make you a king. Well, that sounds like a pretty good deal. How do I get my troops all to become Christian? We get a priest. He sits by a river with a long limb of a tree in his hand. He's sitting here, and Pepin has the troops line up in formation and march by and under the tree where the priest is sitting. He's dipping the tree limb in the river, sprinkling over here the troops that go by, and now they're a Christian. Now we've got a Christian group. The Anababis said, these are not Christians. The Anababis said, these have never been baptized. They need a legitimate biblical baptism, and they rebaptize them, so they got the name Anababist. Let's talk about these three lines because I want to make sure we get it. And I may go a little longer here today just because we need to finish this. We're going to then have a break before the morning service as usual. I want to talk about the eastern line. The, the people in the eastern line, and you're going to see a map come up here momentarily. And these in this eastern line came up from mainly through Greece and went north. If you look at the map, you'll notice that just above Greece is going to be the, what are called the Balkan states. These are Serbia states and Bosnia and Croatia and, and uh, a lot of these countries in that area. Romania is on up there. And so these Serbian states, over to the west of these, or excuse me, to the east of there, looking over here, over in this area here, uh, this is another area, Armenia. Here are the Armenians in the Bible. The Armenians are in this area here. So you see here are these Serbian states up here. And here are the Armenians. And Paul, his playground, I mean, this is where he was sent out by the church down here and went through Cyprus Island, went on up through here on a missionary campaign. And we actually made three missionary campaigns. The seven churches of Asia are in this area, some that are not of the seven churches of Asia. There were others besides those seven. This is that area and so these people generally call themselves Paulicians. 
I mean, they were right out New Testament guys. They believed what Jesus who was. Paul preached Christ and the hope of glory. And so they, they were around the Black Sea, uh, this uh, Black Sea area in here in the Caspian Sea, but particularly in the Black Sea in this area right here. And their name probably derived from Paul. I mean, it's not proved that it did, but it certainly seems like all evidence indicates it's that way. And Paul was greatly used to plant lots and lots of churches. And the Paulicians rejected tradition. They held to the scriptures. They relied, uh, also rejected relics, you know, statues and all the stuff that got brought into this Catholic system. And they continued with two ordinances that were not redemptive. They didn't bring salvation the Lord's Supper and baptism, they were memorial representatives saying that a person has already trusted Christ and they remembered Jesus. And these are the kind of things they believe, which is, by the way, the kind of things we believe at Northwest Baptist Church. We're them. They're us. This is the people. And I'm talking about a continuous line from the church that Jesus built. We say we're going to, now we're getting out of the first and second, into the second century and the third century and the fourth century. And here's, and that map is, is where we went. That's where we were, at least that's one place where our people were. The Paulicians were mercilessly hunted and violently persecuted by the state church, especially when it got in real power. They were able to migrate across Europe where they found solace. And they became deeply planted with the next group that we'll see in just a moment, but not immediately here. And they were the Albigenses. The pure lifestyle of the Paulicians won them respect among the Arabs because the Arabs at that early point had not, uh, Mohammed hadn't come on the scene. There was no Islam. So you know what the Arabs call these guys? They call them Sabians. You know what Sabian means in English? Baptizers or Baptists. They just call them the Baptists. That's, we got that name way back here. It's not a Johnny-come-lately name. It's a Baptist. They were known as Bogomils also in the, in the Balkans. In France, they were called Bulgarians. Um, they were called Paulicans, not just Paulicians. In some places, they just called them Paulicans and Bonnihomins, uh, which means good men. And many of them clustered in the area around Milan, uh, in in uh, Italy, and this would be this area right up in here. We'll have another map showing that in in just a moment. I want to talk about the Bogomils while we're while we're looking at maps here. Bogomils is the name given to the true believers in Bosnia, Bulgaria, and Armenia from the first to the tenth century. We're talking about our line traceable from the first to the tenth century in just this people alone. Yeah, we're here. We've been here. Paulicians was the original name of the Bogomils, and they're sometimes called and were called by the general name Cathari, purist, because they were that kind of people. The name Bogomil is thought to be derived from the Bulgarian Bazi Muli, signifying God have mercy, God have mercy on us. That's the kind of thinking they had. In 1240, Bogomilian doctrines had spread so successfully across Europe, listen to this, so successfully across Europe that Bogomils were, were estimated and believed to be in the two to three million population. And you understand then, Europe wasn't nearly as highly populated as it is now. It was a big part of the, percent, uh, of the people, a big percentage, were, were converted, almost three million at one point. The membership of Bogomil churches was divided into two classes. There were the credentes, who were the regular believers, and they were the perfecte, who were mainly the pastors and missionaries and the women who assisted them. It was not a hierarchy system. But they recognized, kind of like we do, we have pastors and deacons, officers in the church, 
So don't imagine there's some episcopate in mind here. These two sects of believers, uh, there were two sects of believers. They're the ones in Bulgaria, and, and especially the ones in Bo- Bo- Bosnia. They were Bogomils, but they weren't exactly uh, uh, the same because the Bulgarians had a few manuscripts, only a few of the Bibles, and they had some little a little era mixed in, some Manichaeism, and I won't try to get into that. It's just a false doctrine. But it's, they kept getting more scriptures, and you just trace them in history, and their, their doctrinal position lines up more and more. They become more and more just who we are. I want to now uh, take you to the central line. So I want to talk about the central line. Keep in mind, three lines. The eastern line, this one we've just been talking about here. Now we're looking at the central line. This central line had a group in it called the Albigenses. Now that's a long word and not real common to a whole lot of people. Now there's a map on here, and you will see here's Albi, and this Gallia is France. And so we're looking at southern France here, and we're looking at the big mountain range over here, uh, the Alps over here, and the Pyrenees over here in Spain down here. So here's Albi, and here's a stronghold of this group of people. And I want you to notice this is Italy down here. I told you earlier, Rome is where the big persecution headquarters were. They're the ones that are sending out the hunters to kill Christians. People are not like the Roman church, not embracing Romanism doctrine. So these people are running. They run through this area, beautiful area of Milan, and they come into the Piedmont in this mountainous area and into Provence and over into Dauphine and into Albi into France, and in these areas all around. This, this was their stronghold. The Alps became a refuge. When these people were, when, when they were trying to kill them, they're putting them in these, these uh, kangaroo courts where you're, you're doomed before you start because you're not one of us. You didn't baptize your child. You rebaptized somebody who's a believer now and wasn't then. I mean, when, when these people down here got under, under fierce persecution, they had to go somewhere where they could be safe, and the somewhere was in these rugged mountains up here, especially in these, not so much these over here, but these mountains in here. They went up there as a matter of, of survival. The state church hunted. It, it was after them. It sought to eradicate, especially sought to eradicate the Albigenses. I mean, they hated them. The Pope hated them. The communities of churches that reflected first century and practiced first century Christianity existed in the especially the valleys of France, from the earliest ages of Christianity, in the valleys of France, especially these valley, valleys in this Cotian Alps area, there's a lot of hills and valleys in here. And it's easy to see why. These people could hide there. There were mountains, there were cliffs, and there were caves, and there were places where they could evade these uh, marchers or these people who came after them. So they went into this area. When the Paulicians arrived, they rapidly spread through southern France and the little city of Albi in the district of Albagois, because it became the center of the party. And from this location, they just spread out, not just back in here, but they began to spread out, especially here into Lyons, France. The guy got saved who became one of them right here. And we'll talk about Peter Waldo. And so they just spread the gospel all north and all around this is a central spot. It was a gateway for the gospel that had come up through here and preserved, not as a breakaway group, 
but as the group of staying true who were under persecution who were there. Again, we're talking about more than a thousand years starting from the church in Jerusalem. So here's a second uh, trunk to our tree. You know, the root being Jesus Christ, the church in Jerusalem. Now, who are we? Are we rooted? Well, we're rooted through the Bogomils on the eastern side. We're rooted through now this central section, being the first with the Albigenses. And I want to talk about these Albigenses. The, epist- the epithets of Cathari and, and the Peterins were applied to them as terms of reproach. And also that of the Lollards. The Lollards comes up. The Lollards is a name from a man named Lollard. His last name uh, was Lollard. And his first name was Walter, Walter Lollard. He came in this, up in this area. Got converted. He actually went over into England. We're going to talk about him a little more. He got a lot of people converted over there. But I mean, he comes right out from the trunk. I mean, he never embraced Catholicism, never embraced the drift away from Christ at all and the, and the doctrine of truth at all. I want to mention also overlapping terms like Albigenses, but Albigenses being a local name obviously became Albigenses because of the area. The area of men around Alba. They congregated, became a community of Christians, a strong community of Christians. But they were also in a bigger picture of the Waldenses. Let me talk about the Waldenses. The evidence, and we're looking at a map now of the Waldenses, points to the fact that the Waldenses were the ones who converted this man named Peter Waldo that I mentioned a while ago. Uh, Peter Waldo was in this area up here at Lyon. So Peter Waldo was converted by the Waldenses. And so I won't, there are lots of people. I encountered this in the university system. People who say that uh, Waldenses are the children of the product of Peter Waldo. They got their name from Waldo, and they're his followers. Waldo had a whole lot of followers. He was a preacher royal. But Waldo was a rich lost man living in Lyon, France, who got converted because he met up some Waldenses who brought in the gospel of Christ and he trusted Christ. He was a Catholic who became a Christian. So he didn't, he didn't start the Waldenses. The Waldenses won him to Christ. So somebody comes in and says, well, these Waldenses, there's a breakaway group there, the products of Paul or Peter Waldo. You just say, you need to do your history a little better. You need to do a little research because the reality is he was won by them, but he was a rich guy he sold most of what he had, and he began to just preach. He studied for a long time, and then he began to preach. And he had a gifted uh, personality, and people followed him. Boy, they came, got on board. And as they followed Peter Waldo, uh, he spread the gospel. I mean, he became the chief champion of the Waldenses. And all of these mountains, and I won't, no, don't go back there, Bob. Just know that, and these, uh, these guys, he, they, they followed him. And they began to get converts, and the Waldenses became strong in that area. It's the strong. And the Waldenses, up until probably the 15th century, the Waldenses are the best, most uh, pure, good example of real New Testament Christians there are. And there is no doubt, there is historical record after historical record, that they were always here, all the way from the church in Jerusalem, shortly thereafter when they got persecuted and got into these mountains. But they are our people. I'm glad to be identified with the Waldenses. I'm glad to be identified with the 
uh, people of Alba, France, and had, I'm telling you, one time in my life, a wonderful opportunity to go to Alba, France. I just wanted to get out, kiss the ground. Thank God for people who stood up for what's right against the Pope, which wasn't that far away down there in Rome. I'm telling you, it's just a wonderful thing to know there were people who gave it, uh, gave it all for the cause and stayed true to the faith. Champions uh, known as poor men of lions joined him. So the poor men of lions, if you ever run across that, are the Peter Waldo followers who were from Lions, France, early on, as we might call it. <coughs> This drew the ire of the Catholic Church when Peter Waldo got to winning people and the Waldenses got strong. The Pope down there is looking over his shoulder and he's saying, we can't put up with that. So uh, Waldo and his followers were driven out of, of Leon, our lines, and by an imperial edict uh, in, eight, in 1184. And with the passing of time, uh, Waldo became so influential that he began uh, became inseparably associated with the Waldenses. So you can't hardly think of the Waldenses without thinking of Peter Waldo. Well, they just go together. But keeping in mind who came first. The Waldenses were already there a long time before Peter Waldo, and they converted him, and he became one of their champions. Among those who he reached with the gospel, that we're going to take a, a moment here. We're going to go now to the Western line. I talked to you about the Eastern line talk to you about the central line and now I'm going to spend these last few minutes talking about the western line the Welsh Baptist you say western line the Welsh Baptist and you can see here we're talking about England and Wales see here Ireland Scotland and England and Wales so here's England so let me just park here for a moment on this and say that the Welsh Baptist in approximately 63 AD, the New Testament book of Philippians was written by the Apostle Paul, who was at that time a prisoner in Rome, under Roman authority, a prisoner in Rome. Paul had an enormous impact on the Roman soldiers who were his guards. You know, Rome was a military state. They had soldiers that they conscripted or brought into service from these places they captured. So there were people from England and Wales who were under Roman authority who were brought into Rome, get certain training, and some of these became known as the Praetorian Guards, special select servants who were at the very discretion of the Caesar and many of them served in prisons as guards in prison, particularly the big ones in Rome itself. And Paul is there, and if you know much about the Apostle Paul, you've got to know that while he was in prison, he was manacled or chained with a one-foot, 18-inch chain to his guard. His head, their hand, together. He, the prisoner couldn't get away from the guard without killing the guard. And if they got too rambunctious, the guard might kill them. So, I mean, it was this... He, these prisoners or these guards were watchers. They, were, they, were, they had to carry out their shifts. And while they're being guard, guarding Paul the Apostle, Paul the Apostle is giving them the gospel, preaching to them. I hope you don't go to prison, but if you do, don't go in there and suck your thumb. Go in there and preach Christ. Amen. Paul was doing that, and people got saved. Two of the people who got saved were... Um, Pudens and Claudia. 
They're mentioned in your Bible. In the last chapter of the uh, last book, the Apostle Paul, the final book that he wrote, 2 Timothy. These guys are mentioned in there, 2 Timothy 4 and verse 21. Pudens and Claudia were from Wells. They were Welch people who were in the Roman army who came to Rome. And Welch records indicate that Pudens and Claudia, along with other converted Welchmen, went back to Wells, got back home, and when they got back home, they preached the gospel to the Welsh people. And many of the Welsh people were converted to Christianity. A whole new line of Christianity, not associated with the Eastern line or the Central line, but a whole separate line through Putin and Claudio, through the prison ministry of Paul, went home, preached the gospel, and people got saved so that Wales became one of the first nations on the planet to become a really Christian nation. Wells of all places. You see uh, the map here. About 50 BC, the Romans invaded the British Isles, but they were not fully able to conquer them or totally subdue them. They just kind of had them down, but they, the Welsh were very independent-minded people. So the Romans made peace with the Welsh people and kind of catered to them, and they were, they were not totally uh, adversarial. About the year of 180, 180 A.D., there was a Welsh king called Lucius in place. Lucius. Lucius converted to Christianity, and he was the first king in the world to become a Christian, a real Christian, not just like Constantine, you know, false profession, but a real Christian. In New Testament Christianity and begin to practice and preach New Testament Christianity through this ministry of Putin and Claudia. Wells had a large flourishing community of believers and churches practicing New Testament Christianity from the first century. I want to emphasize that from the first century forward. These didn't start up late. These are just continuous line from that church in Jerusalem, just like the middle ones were, the central ones, and like the eastern ones. Three lines, three trunks are, 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 are root systems to this, this great uh, thing of Christianity. In 593, uh, Pope was Gregory at the time, one of the Gregories. He, he was Bishop of Rome, and he sent a monk named Austin to England. He was going to bring the Saxons, the Anglo-Saxons, to Christ, going to make England a real Christian nation and conform to the church in Rome. He did that pretty well in England, but when he got to Wells, especially the Bangor Wells, don't look at that back up, when he got to Bangor Wells, uh, he encountered a college, a training session where there were 2,100 Christians who were dedicated themselves to the Lord to serve in the ministry, and they were New Testament Christians. <laughs> Bangor Wells, not some other place there. They baptized only believers by immersion, and they immediately recognized and rejected Austin, this monk, saying, you trying to convert us, you need to get converted. <laughs> we are already Christians. You're not. What you believe is not what Jesus Christ taught and the apostles taught. So they, they rebel. I mean, they just rejected this message. And what Austin did, got mad about it. He said, well, you either convert or we're going to come after you. And you're going to have war. And that's exactly what happened. In spite of all that happened, though, God preserved these Welsh people. And they were integrated into England. They were right there in that same area, as you could see on the map. And they were integrated into England. 
And John Fox, who has Fox's Book of Martyrs, it's really a quite interesting book. It's real thick, but it'll tell you story after story, true story of martyrs, people who were persecuted, and many of them died for the cause. He recorded how Christianity came to England. Now listen to this. In the latter half of the second century, you got to know that's 150, 140 to 50 A.D. That's early on. That's when the Welsh people got going. Fox also records uh, many of the efforts of, of uh, Diocletian, Emperor Diocletian, to destroy Christians under the pagan Rome persecution, but that didn't work. Another good writer is named Thomas Crosby, and he said, quote, The true Christian doctrine and form of worship as delivered by the apostles was maintained in England, and the Romanish government and ceremonies were zealously withstood till the Saxons entered into Britain about the year of 448. So all along, this guy is testifying with evidence that these Christians were there keeping the faith. 597, Pope Gregory sent this monk, Austin, to convert the British, and it didn't work out well. But I will say this, he succeeded in officially bringing England and Wales into Catholicism. However, he needed success, never succeeded in eradicating true Christians from either Wales or England. They stayed. He tried to do away with them, and they got hurt. But they still were there even after him for years. Walter Lollard, I mentioned him a while ago. He came to England from the Waldenses, got converted over there, moved over to England as sort of a missionary, his followers rapidly increased. He had lots of charisma. He was winning ways. He had a great message. And it is said that within a few years, now listen to this, in a few years, more than one half of the people of England became Lollards, which is another way of saying they became rebaptizers or Baptists, Anabaptists or rebaptizers. People say, well, y'all started late. You Christians, you Baptists, you're just a cult group that started off, you know, many years later. They don't know their history. People that say that are just downright ignorant of the facts. The fact is we've been here and there's evidence, lots of evidence, not just little evidence. Ultimately to America. Let me bring this to a quick conclusion. A measure of religious tolerance existed in England. However, there was no real freedom of religion. If you read much about England before the, the settlers came to the United States, before the Mayflower and Plymouth Colony and all that stuff, or Plymouth Rock. Uh, you got to know that in England, it wasn't safe to be a, a real Bible Christian. There were a bunch of things going on. They weren't Catholic anymore. Well, at different times, they turned Catholic and then back to Protestant and back and forth. But even when they were Protestant, they were just Catholics by a new name. But they practiced all kinds of stuff against true Christians, and there were lots of these, like one out of two at one point when Lollard was there. So what these uh, leaders of, of uh, England did, these, um, you know, in England, they didn't receive, they didn't believe in the Pope anymore. They had the Archbishop of Can- Canterbury. You probably saw that at the coronation yesterday with, with the king. So he's a very prominent guy. He's the head of the Anglican church. And that's what they call the church in England. It just was mainly a Catholic church, but because Henry VIII didn't get a divorce from his wife, he got Pope mad at him. He just said, well, I'll leave the Pope. I'll start my own church, and I'll be the head of it. So that's kind of how that went. And he made the Archbishop of Canterbury the main guy. And they were always setting laws of what you had to do. You go to church every Sunday. 
And if you don't, you pay a fine. <laughs> you wouldn't like that so much, I bet. You preach the wrong stuff and we catch you and we're going to give you a beating. We have the right to come into your house and confiscate your bed or your horse or your cow or your hog or whatever. We, we, I mean, they were just downright hard on Christians. And the more you stood for biblical Christianity in England, the worse it got. So much so that when there was a discovery of the new world, this unknown over here, this America place, there were a lot of people in England who said, I'm willing to give up my home. I'm willing to give up my everything to go over there to where there's some hope. You got to know that to ride a little bitty boat across the Atlantic Ocean and to go to shore where you don't have any stores, no grocery stores, no pharmacies, no doctors, just Indians and raw woods. It gets real bad in Massachusetts and Connecticut and places like that in the wintertime. For people over there in England to pull up stake and take wife and kids and everything they can put in a little boat on, on their backs and go across the Atlantic Ocean in the middle of storms and all that goes with that and land on a foreign shore they're not going because they're looking for a better uh, way to make a living and make a buck. Now, the colonists that were organized, like the Massachusetts Bay Colony, Boston, those investors, they wanted to make a profit. They saw a profit out of it. But the people that were going and actually going to live in the woods and huts and try to deal with Indians and all they dealt with, I guarantee you, they were just looking to get away from persecution. Burns me when like Nancy and Margaret and baby sister and myself were up there a year ago and hear the report of those guides over there in Providence, uh, Providence, Rhode Island, talking about, well, our forefathers didn't come here because they were under religious persecution. They were looking for a way to make money. That's a flat lie. That doesn't, that doesn't line up at all with historical facts, even in America, historical facts. But nevertheless, they came. These people came. And some of those people who came were first century Christians. Most of them, actually, because they were the persecuted. They were getting away, trying to live and survive again. They were running. And they set up churches. They didn't set up Catholic churches. They set up first century Christians. Now, some of them did. Some of them, the, the rulers, the main guys, and the you know, they'd set up a church kind of like the Church of England, you know, called Puritans and stuff like that. But a lot of them were just downright plain old person. You know one of the first groups that came over here? A group in Wales. A Baptist church in Wales came over here. The whole church moved to the United States, to the new country, and set up a church, the Welsh Baptist Church in the United States. That was not the first one. The first one was in Providence. Rhode Island, but it's time for me to stop. If you want to hear the rest of the story, you have to come this afternoon. <laughs> All right. Father, thank you for the time we've had to just talk here. And, and uh, we need to take a break now and have church in a bit. Uh, I ask you, Father, to bless our time together. And may these truths, these factual statements and records about who we are resonate with us so that we're not ashamed of who we are. We're just glad to be Baptist. I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Brother Richard, are you willing to say something?